All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. I'm joined on the show today by a special guest. We have Rebecca Costa. Rebecca is an American sociobiologist and futurist. She is the preeminent global expert on the subject of fast adaptation and recipient of the prestigious Edward Owen Wilson Biodiversity Technology Award. Her career spans four decades of working with founders, executives, and leading venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. Rebecca's work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, The Guardian, and other leading publications. She currently serves as the advisory committee for the Lifeboat Foundation, along with futurist Ray Kurzweil and Nobel laureates Daniel Kahneman, Eric Maskin, Richard Roberts, and Wol Suinka. All right, Rebecca, I could keep going, but uh, I think that'll suffice for the introduction. Welcome to the oh, show. Please don't. Those, <laughs> those long introductions make me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> Well, welcome to the show. Um, I'm glad to have you on, and I actually will say this is the first futurist, I believe, that I've had on the show. So first, tell me a little about just what originally intrigued you into this sort of line of work. What, what sparked your interest? Well, uh, first of all, the term futurist was something that was foisted on me. I've never liked the term or felt comfortable with it. Uh, because uh, if I was such a futurist, I'd be able to tell you what stocks to buy, uh, and I'd be a very wealthy woman. Um, uh, I think what got me the label is that I'm really a, a specialist in predictive analytics, uh, but I've noticed nobody knows what that is either. So um, uh, in simple terms, if you have 100 numbers, it's not that hard to predict what the 101st number is. And if you have billions and billions and billions of data points, uh, it's not that difficult to predict what the next event is likely to be. And so that's what I do. I, I sort through a lot of data, mountains of data, and I use artificial intelligence tools to look at what the next likely event might be and how things may trend. I don't talk to dead people. I don't read tarot cards and give you astrological readings. And I cannot tell you what stocks to buy. Okay. Well, that ruins my next question. I was just going to ask you I imagine. <laughs> um, so what, uh, what, what goes into, I guess, becoming a good, uh, a good predictor of these trends? Like what, what has made you uh, or what has gotten you to where you are in your career today? Like what, what sort of skills or traits do you think that you possess to, to really be able to uh, predict this sort of stuff that uh, a lot of people can't do? I don't know what the exact skills are. I can tell you that um, uh, I am very unbiased. I'm, I'm sort of uh, clinical in terms of my personality. Um, so uh, I, I'm not political. Uh, I don't screen things. I just look at the data and whatever the data says, no matter how disagreeable or uncomfortable or inconvenient it is, it is what it is. And I think that many times we want to bend the data, you know, to, to serve our purposes. But we have to understand that many of our purposes are remnants of um, you know, paleolithic emotions that we have. 
we're not we're not driven by entirely good motives and sometimes we and in fact often we don't know what those motives are so rather than be driven by them and manipulated by them i would rather have the data drive me so uh many times people say well you know do you trust ai machines more than humans heck yeah <laughs> I mean, I'd be a field day for a psychiatrist because um, if I go outside and my neighbor says, hey, you know, it might rain, you might want to take a jacket. And I walk inside to get the jacket and I say, hey, Alexa, you know, what's the weather going to be like? And Alexa says, no rain until midnight. I'm probably going to believe Alexa, you know, my, my smart speaker than I am my neighbor who kind of sort of thinks it's going to rain. And as a matter of fact, thanks to the ghost satellites, uh, I noticed last week I got pinged that it was going to rain in the next six minutes. I mean, imagine that. It's, it's inconceivable that a hundred years ago we could have said with a tremendous degree of accuracy, it's going to rain in the next six minutes. So, uh, you know, this is what data is doing for us. It's allowing us to be extremely accurate predictors. And so one of the skill sets you want to have is to be extremely objective and not to go looking for data, right? Because that's going to bias you and predispose you to see what you want to see or what you, uh, and, and to not see other things that are equally important but let the data inform you. And I think if you have that kind of a, an approach uh, and a mentality, more like an engineering uh, uh, student or a physicist, as an example, I get along with engineers and physicists really well because there are certain laws that drive the, the universe. And, uh, and we know what those are and they are what they are. And even when we don't like them, they are, they're true and they exist. So you can't argue about gravity. <laughs> right. Well, uh, but <laughs> yeah. So when it, when it comes to this data, how, like, how do you, how are you sure, how are you able to know, you know, that the data really is unbiased and it isn't contaminated by any sort of outside influences? Like what, is it just that you know the specific sites or resources that, that you need to go to, to, to find out well, the information? You, know, or? You, you have to remember that manipulation of data represents a very, very small fragment of the data that's out there. So facts are very stubborn things. They, they, they tend to be consistent, like the laws that govern gravity and relativity. And they tend to, by far, overwhelm the, the malfeasance where people are manipulating the data. So the wonderful thing about artificial intelligence is it has an accommodation for errors and uh, wrongdoing. And it's going to eliminate that. So you could get thousands or even millions of people saying it's not going to rain in six minutes, it's going to rain, you know, in one hour, and they could all be trying to enter that data but there's the the evidence is going to be so much uh, greater than than the manipulation that you know the AI systems will uh, factor that out. So uh, you know it, it's um, unless you know you have everybody that's wrong, and and there are times in history where everyone is wrong. But 
you know, that that's not likely to happen in the digital era. I see. Okay. And, you know, uh, Rebecca, where I want to transition the conversation to is, you know, I, I noted on your, your bio in, in bold letters or, or all caps rather, uh, you're able, uh, it, it says that you're able to speak on the, the post COVID economy, what happens after the vaccine. So tell me about that, because obviously that's a, a very relevant topic right now. So what does happen after the, the vaccine? Well, a number of things, and, and some of them are worrisome and some of them are hopeful. Um, we, you know, we've paid a big price to learn uh, a really big lesson. And that is what um, uh, Alvin Toffler said 50 years ago in Future Shock. He said, you know, disruption is the future rushing at you, mm. right? And the interesting thing about being a futurist is that we know what's coming right? We know what's coming two years, three years, five years, 10 years. We can look at trends in science. We can look at data. We can look at migration paths of humans. We can look at weather patterns, billions and billions of, of uh, uh, measurements of the earth's temperature. We can take all of this data and we can project it outward. Now, our projections are not going to be perfect, but remember, every day our tools are getting more and more refined. So we are reaching close to perfection in terms of these predictions. And so the real challenge that society has is that we're so used to not knowing what the future is, and so we're wait, we wait and wait and wait for it to get closer in, right? Because we don't want to overreact or react and respond in the wrong way. But with the tools that we have now, they are so accurate and we have so much data about what's coming our way. We need to now rethink that and realize that there's no reason to wait. In fact, if we wait, we are at peril because there are many problems that cannot be addressed when the danger is upon you, such as climate change. You know, you can't just pivot on those kinds of things uh, and, and suddenly just decide, okay, uh, it's close enough now. It's dangerous enough now. We're now, we've now gone from global warming to global burning officially. And so now let's try to fix it. I mean, there's a point of no return. So uh, in my view, we don't need to wait. So you asked me about the post, you know, uh, coronavirus uh, thing. Let me talk about something that will interest all of your listeners and, you, and, and hopefully they'll retweet it and they'll put it out there. In a couple of months, I, I generally talk about things that are two, five, and 10 years out, and I will talk about that in a minute. But let me talk about something that's coming up in just a couple of months. Now, I'm not a political person, but I can tell you that there are a lot of people who are in financial peril right now that are on unemployment. What's going to hit them in April is the fact that all of the unemployment benefits they're getting are taxable. Now, it is not a coincidence, by the way, that they are talking about the new administration's um, uh, relief checks arriving the first and second week in April, about the time that you realize that you owe taxes on the unemployment that you got because you became unemployed through no fault of your own. So in essence, I worry about this idea that the government gives you money so that you could give it back to them. There's sort of a false 
narrative that's beginning to play out here and people are going to get very smart about this very quickly and you're going to begin to see it in the media of where did my 1600 or my 1500 or whatever they decide on go it went to satisfy the irs who if i don't pay those taxes right can lean my house lean my paycheck you know do all kinds of very bad things to me so this is what i mean about getting ahead of the future this is going to happen in just a couple of months uh yes we can delay the tax uh deadline to july which i believe that they're talking about or have done but even so to make tax to make unemployment benefits taxable is a little bit like kicking the people who are down when they're down and and so and a very easy correction to prevent that from happening would be simply to make unemployment benefits tax-free last year and this year until we can get out of the fully get out of the the COVID emergency so there are many many tools like this that in the next 30 60 90 days we should all have our eyes wide open and our ears open and be listening for right because if we don't fix those things we're allowing people to suffer the long tail of the virus the virus will be over we'll be vaccinated but digging out of that financial misery with the irs in particular now i've been audited by the irs before and i fortunately am here to say i didn't owe them any money it turned out that I did, my, my CPA did my taxes right, and I thank him. Uh, but I can tell you it's a real nerve-wracking experience and a scary one. And I don't think we need to subject people who are already struggling to that process. And that's completely avoidable. So there, there's a, a really clear example of how you don't have to allow a pro a snow a, the problem that's the size of a snowball, you don't need to allow it to roll down the hill until it's the size of a building and then try to stop it. And we have a history of, of trying to chase the snowball. Uh, social media is a good example. You know, that train left the station 25 years ago, and here we are trying to stuff the toothpaste back in the tube 25 years late. It isn't going to happen. You know, you can, you can have as many Senate hearings as you want about social media and how, you know, you can't let people make threats and you can't let them make so false statements. And then you go, well, what's a false statement? Is someone's opinion that's wrong a false statement? And, and you're, you know, we're, we're, we're having these discussions too late. The role of government is to put guardrails in before the technology and the science have liftoff. And we know what those sciences and those technologies are. And so it is really, really important that we put guardrails around them before the fact and not after. Is that something that you find most of the time is is plausible to do? I mean, is the government working with uh, these different technologists, uh, people who are doing, you know, working with these innovative technologies? Like, is there a lot of cross collaboration? Like, is this idea something that actually no. can be implemented? Zero foresight. 
zero foresight on the part of the government. And one of the best things that the Biden administration can do is, is form a division that is all about the future. You know, is, is, is looking at 3D printing and the impact that's going to have because all progress has a dark side, right? Everything has, you know, the, if we didn't invent the internet, we wouldn't have to worry about identity theft. We wouldn't have to worry about a, a cyber warfare. Uh, uh, the example I, I frequently use is, is when Charles Lindbergh uh, completed his uh, Atlantic flight, he was the recipient of many peace awards because it was believed that if you could shuttle diplomats from one country to another across vast oceans, that it, it would cut down on the number of wars when you can meet face to face. Nobody was thinking at that time that we'd be using those planes to carry bombs, you know, as, as weapons. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a dark side to all progress, whether it's the automobile and, or the internet or, or cross-Atlantic flight. Um, and, and so what the government's role should be is to look ahead at science and technology and then make sure that those guardrails are in place to, uh, to avoid the abuses. Because there will be abuse. We know that. That's just human nature. Got it. Well said. Well, Rebecca, I wanted to transition a little bit um, to talk to you about your work um, on the advisory committee for the Lifeboat Foundation. So you're working with some, some very interesting, impactful, uh, famous people on this board. So Ray Kurzweil, um, who I know is, is quite well known, uh, along with uh, these Nobel laureates that I mentioned in the bio. Tell me what that has been like just to work with, with such brilliant, um, intelligent people um, with uh, just well, on these projects. Well, most, most futurists, Right, and, and, uh, and people that work in my field are not really very good collaborators. <laughs> we're, we're sort of solo thinkers. We have to uh, uh, work out problems and things on our own, and then we share, right? But um, it's a, I tell people it's a little bit like going skiing. You can go skiing with your friends, but you're the only one on your skis. Right, I mean, you're kind of skiing with them, but really it's you on your own skis. You know, it's not a group activity. It's a group activity as you're going up the lift. It's a group activity when you're having lunch, but not when you're actually skiing. And, and, I, and I think that it, it might be similar when you're working with, really, with uh, high powered thought leaders. Uh, they are all, I, I should say, much smarter and much more talented than I am. I'm, I'm just fortunate to even be lumped in that group, and I, I'm not even comfortable with that. Um, but having said that, I, I will say that I benefit, my work has benefited greatly from their thinking, because they have taken so many risks in thinking way outside the box. You know, to the, they're so far away from the box, the box is invisible anymore. Um, and, uh, and, and that pushes me to think harder about what the future is. The Lifeboat Foundation in specific, specifically is um, work that we're doing to think about life on other planets. As we leave the Earth, what will we be exporting into the rest of the universe? And what will survival and civilizations there look like? 
And we're trying to work through some of those issues. Um, and myself, I'm a sociobiologist by training. And so my work is in the area of how will societies uh, and how will human beings uh, operate in those societies? Um, how will they function? How will they thrive? How will children be educated? How, what will work look like? Sure. Well, Rebecca, I want to talk to you about uh, your couple books. The, the first, so you wrote the, the international bestseller, The Watchman's Rattle, A Radical New Theory of Collapse. Tell me about, um, I, I read the bio and it sounds like um, it's basically, you're sort of talking about these very global problems and I get, what was the aim to try to help people get a better understanding of, of sort of what those big problems are and, and maybe how we can go about working to solve them? Yes, um, I became interested in why we have the science and technology to cure almost everything that ails humanity today, and we do. You could throw anything at me and I could tell you, we have a solution probably in our back pocket that hasn't been brought to bear yet. But I, I couldn't understand why we were so gridlocked and why we weren't using what we know and what we have. And that led me to look at previous civilizations and was there a point at which they became gridlocked? Um, historians have done a really good job of describing the, the triggering event, you know, the, the match that lit the fuse that caused the fall of the Roman Empire or the fall of the Khmers or the Mayans. Um, but what they haven't looked at is really was the society acting or behaving in a certain way that made them vulnerable to that triggering event. And as you know from looking at my book, that uh, I discovered three behaviors that the, that the person on the street was engaged in. The first was that the society and day-to-day -day life became so complex, it was very hard for people to make the right choices. Um, their laws, where they got their food and water, um, you know, trying to understand legislation, all, all everything became so complicated, it, came, it became very hard for the person on the street to figure out what was what. Uh, and the second thing is, is that it became gridlocked. They reached sort of a cognitive threshold where their brains really couldn't um, uh, dissect and, and uh, make logic or sense out of what they were doing or what they were choosing of the decisions that they were making. And, the, and, and so I called that a cognitive threshold. And the society becomes a bit gridlocked. Um, and then the third uh, phase is that uh, uh, there is mass confusion between what is an empirical fact and what is a, um, uh, an unproven belief. And eventually that confusion percolates up into governance and leadership. Uh, and the final phase is that societies, uh, you know, their, their social and public policy begins to be forged on unproven beliefs, not empirically valid facts. And that sort of sets up the conditions, if you will, for some triggering event to cause a very, very rapid collapse. Um, and so I tracked that through all of the civilizations. And once I saw that pattern, I published uh, the Watchman's Rattle, and because 
I, you know, I had no idea. That was like 10 years ago. I had no idea we were going to go through what we went through. But uh, people like Richard Branson and, and a number of uh, visionaries said that it was very prescient because I had outlined the steps that would set a society up to become, un to come, become unraveled very, very quickly. And many people feel that I, uh, I had outlined the precursors that would cause the United States to be in trouble. So if it's possible, I, I want you to, to sort of walk me through the, what, 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 is what takes place in your brain when, when you form these sort of connections? Like how are you, are you just reading, uh, consuming as much material as you can and then you, you, you make certain connections between disparate things or like like how how does this work how how what's your process in terms of like getting to i I, I wish i had a process i believe all all data will somehow be used at some particular point in time i i you know uh my father i remember my father and i being at a party and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said to me I know you're engaged in this conversation with this young man, but they held this party for you. You're the guest of honor. And, and I said, yes. And, and he said, so you can't sit there and talk about uh, new technology for um, earth-friendly septic tanks all night long with this guy. <laughs> you have to mingle around and meet people. But I was so interested in his idea for better septic uh, uh, technology uh, that you know I I don't didn't care much for the party. Um, uh, the process that goes on in my head is that uh, ev all data is important, and I don't know how it will be connected, but I do know that I will look for patterns. That I I since I was small. I seem to see a pattern and many times in an unassociated area. You know, I was working in agriculture and I could see that the problems agriculture was having were the same problems that were happening in an emergency room in a hospital. I can't tell you why my brain saw those as very similar problems. But I can tell you that when I sat down with the world's largest food pro uh, producer and I told him we need all the executives to go to an emergency room and study how they take a, a ill patient and increase that patient's probability of surviving because when you cut a plant out of the field, it's dying. Right, and, and you want to get it to the grocery store in as good a condition for it to survive as possible. And that's very similar to the process that emergency rooms use. And, and so even though those might seem really, really different, my brain will see them as the same problem, the same pattern, the same issue. I see, okay. Does that make sense? And it it does. So what? Tell me, like, I really as, hate as, coming across as a crazy person. <laughs> but but bear in mind, all futurists are that far away from being locked up in a mental institution. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, tell me about like, what, what's the timeline, uh, let's say, as far as like your preparation in, in writing a book, say, say your first book, like how long did it take you to like from, from when you first started observing these, these different patterns to actually like being able to like fully connect all of the dots and- uh, uh, 50 you know. years. Wow. Yes, f 50 years. Uh, I finished the book and I took it to Edward O. Wilson, the great naturalist at Harvard University. And I said, you know, would you take a look at this so I don't publicly embarrass myself? Because he had been a great mentor to me. And uh, of course, he's written hundreds of uh, award-winning books. And I remember he had a smile on his face and he said, what took you so long? And I said, well, I wasn't sure of myself. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. And I don't want to put wrong information out there. And uh, when he was done reading it, he did me the great honor of asking me if I would like him to write the foreword to the book. And that was one of the greatest honors I've ever had in my life. Um, to have the person who, whose work has inspired all of my work um, uh, write the foreword was, was really an incredible honor. Um, I am not a fast writer, as many as my uh, publisher and my literary agent will tell you. I get a new book out now every seven to ten years um, because it takes a very long time to validate the science. And we, we live in a time right now where there is so much junk science and in a haste to get funding or get publicity for their work, scientists are taking little shortcuts. And, uh, and, un and the problem is they take shortcuts and then their work is cited in other work and then that work is cited in other work. And so as I'm, uh, you know, coming up with the work I'm doing, I have to go back to source material to make sure that, that the sources, uh, that, the, that the research was done in a credible way. Okay. Tell me, um, I wanted to ask you if, if you have any like particular knowledge surrounding like kind of the future of, of neurotechnology. So, so obviously I doing a, doing a neuroscience podcast, you know, uh, I, I'm very interested in, in like Elon Musk's uh, Neuralink technology and very curious to like see what happens with that to see if they're actually able to, to do some of the things that they're attempting to. I don't know how, uh, how plausible or how far away we are from that. Is that, is that something that, you're, that you pay any attention to? I am. I'm very interested in neuroscience. Um, uh, I became interested about 15 years ago as I was looking at the work of Michael Mersnick out of the University of San Francisco. He was the one that, that uh, pioneered brain plasticity and the ability of the brain to rewire itself when it's damaged. He was looking at returning veterans that had damage or people that had been in serious accidents. And the brain is very uh, plastic. It, 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 it can rewire uh, cells that were designed to do one thing to do another thing to a certain extent. And this was fascinating to me. And, but as I got to know uh, Dr. Mersnick more and more, I realized he was working on 
ways in which we could load content faster, that we could think better and clearer. And, uh, and he was working on what he called a set of brain fitness tools. Now, I know you can go on the internet and get lots of brain fitness tools, but they're just video games and they don't do much. But uh, my, Dr. Mersnick formed a company called Posit Science. I have nothing to do with this company, I should say. Uh, but what it does is for 10 or 15 minutes, if you play what is, looks like a video game, it, it, it plays like a video game, it's designed to warm up the different parts of your brain, just to get it, just to jump started a bit. And there is tremendous research that shows that it makes learning much easier. It makes it, it, it warms up your spatial, uh, you know, recognition. It, 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 it warms up your memory, your, your logic areas, all of this stuff, preparing you to be able to load content. And I think that this is our big challenge. There's so much coming at us. It's changing in real time that it's very hard for our brains. We've kind of hit our limit, if you will. You know, I mean, our brains aren't going to evolve and suddenly get bigger and, and better overnight. And, and yet technology is accelerating and the amount of content that we need to be able to, to discern, to make successful decisions is getting greater and greater and greater. Now, technology like, like AI and smart devices are helping us to a certain extent, but we still need to make sense of things, right? And so to that extent, I think brain fitness is really, really crucial. And I think, and I believe those tools will get better and better and better over time. Um, and I believe that, you know, the adjunct to the brain, of course, is artificial intelligence which I'm not even sure we should call it artificial. Maybe it's just intelligence. Okay, got it, got it. Well, Rebecca, um, you know, we're coming up onto the end of the show, but, you know, before we go, I wanna just hear, you know, from you, like what, what are some of the, the technologies that are most exciting to you um, as far as that may, you know, kind of revolutionize, revolutionize the future and really, uh, really improve our world? Um, if, if implemented well, along correctly. the lines of neuroscience, I'll, I'll point to one thing, and I will say that we're learning more and more the role of the microbiome, the gut biome, in controlling the brain. We know that uh, mood regulation really takes place in the gut, not in the brain. And for years and years, we've been giving people uh, medication, right, to balance their brain chemistry when really what was out of whack was their microbiome gut chemistry. So we're gonna learn more and more about that. The microbiome is, is extremely complicated. It's like trying to break the human genome. But, but we have scientists that are trying to discern the human microbiome in the same way that we were able to break down the human genome. And once we do that, that's going to have a huge influence on neuroscience. Uh, because after all, the brain relies on chemistry, and chemistry, is, as, as we have discovered, is regulated by the gut, not the brain itself. We thought the brain was in charge, and may, we may have been looking at the wrong end of the body. The other thing that will be coming up that, that is RNA technology, mRNA technology that we use to quickly uh, develop a vaccine now has potential to 
uh, develop vaccines for other things like cancers. We may have a cancer vaccine. We may be able to uh, inject messages that, that allow the body's immune system to develop proteins against other kinds of diseases that we might not be thinking about right now. So although COVID was a, a virus, uh, cancers behave like a virus in some instances. And there are some people that feel that, they are, that cancer is a type of form of virus. Um, and so I think that this mRNA technology is going to uh, really explode. It's going to explode in terms of immunization against many diseases. And, uh, and, and I think that we can, we can count on that happening very shortly. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Rebecca, I really enjoyed our conversation today. If, uh, if the listeners did as well, where would you direct them to, to, to find out more about your work um, or to get your books? Well, I think they should listen to your podcast. I'd agree with that. I'll echo that sentiment. <laughs> and uh, second of all, if they're interested in some of my work, uh, all of the, the content that we put out there is free, uh, including our newsletter. And they can just go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-C-O-S-T-A.com. My name.com. Couldn't be simpler. Awesome. And for those listeners who did enjoy the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. And you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else that audio podcasts are available. Uh, Rebecca, again, I wanted to really thank you for your time and coming on the show today. You're welcome. And thank you for the good work you're doing. Absolutely.